Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I once again were part of the governing, or pardon me, the governance of emerging technologies uh, symposium at ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor School of Law. And we once again had a live audience with us when we talked with Jillian Hadfield. Jillian is the Richard L. and Antoinette. Uh, Shamoy Kirtland Professor of Law and Professor of Economics at the University of Southern California, where she studies the design of legal and dispute resolution systems in advanced and developing market economies, as well as the markets for law, lawyers, and dispute resolution, contract law and theory, economic analysis of law, and regulation of legal markets and the legal profession. She is a busy lady. She is also the director of the USC Center for Law and Social Science. And she's the author of the book, Rules for a Flat World, Why Humans Invented Law and How to Reinvent It for a Complex Global Economy. As you can imagine, we really enjoyed talking with Jillian about how to think about law and governance for new technologies and for future technologies, which is something that we, of course, talk with our guests about quite frequently. And it was a real treat for us to be able able to spend time with Jillian because she really is the expert in the governance of the future, frankly. So we were also very excited to have a live audience with us. So when you hear some rumblings and rustlings in the background, you'll know that it was the international group of scholars and students who joined us for the podcast. Before we get to that, as always, thank you very much for being with us at the Future Out Loud podcast. Of course, you can tell your friends about Future Out Loud, and you can tell them where you found our podcast, wherever you find your fine podcasts, whether it's SoundCloud or iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, or on our website, futureoutloud.org. So without further ado, on with Jillian Hadfield. Hi, Jillian. Hi there. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. So, governance of emerging technologies. How does that, what, what, what? <laughs> what are we doing wrong? What should we do right? Doing wrong? What are, yeah, what are we doing right? So yeah. what are we doing? So what yeah. are we doing? Well, we currently live in a system where we think of governance in terms of the structure that got invented. I like to emphasize really over the last couple of hundred years. We mm-hmm. think of law as a product of government. We think of law as the set of rules that government creates and enforces. Now, in fact, that's not even an accurate description of how things work, as we know there's lots of... Uh, private systems of governance, soft law, and so on. But that's what we think of when we think of regulation. So when we're thinking about any problems that we face, we're thinking, what law do we pass? And how do we create the resources to enforce that? Well, uh, that system worked really, really well, I think. We we had a lot of growth through the 20th century based on that, I'll call it a platform. We start to hit the limits of the complexity that a system like that can handle. Right. Um, probably we're hitting them in the late 20th century. Right. And now we're just off to the races. So so actually, I 
let me just sort of go back a little bit. So you say that's worked pretty well, but I mean, you look over for the last 50, 60 years or so with a number of environmental problems and, and health problems, um, were we already beginning to see the cracks in sort of regulations, especially sort of from science spring onwards with environmental? Um, I, I do think, I do think. So if you're looking at the second half of the 20th century, I yep. think you do start to see that. Although notice that what we have phenomenal uh, economic growth based on these platforms in uh, the advanced West. And we, we still mm -hmm. believe that you know most of our theories of why poorer countries have not uh, I mean, they've reduced the worst forms of poverty, but have not experienced substantial growth, has been a lack of solid uh, legal platforms. So mm -hmm. I, I don't want to diminish what we've right. accomplished right. and the way in which our expectations about what we can accomplish shifted right. over right. the course of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But we certainly start to run into, as our systems grow increasingly complex, that's a characteristic or a consequence of economic growth. Economic growth occurs because we have increasing specialization and the division of labor. We have greater complexity. Mm -hmm. right. uh, so we, we were already hitting those limits with the burdens of ex really complex regulation and legislation, mm -hmm. increasingly complex legal processes, mm -hmm. increasingly expensive because specialized legal expertise. Mm -hmm. And starting to hit those limits. So and, 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 and so this may be really obvious, but just to underline it, what's the problem with complex legal systems? Uh, um, so so why, why can't right. our legal structure keep up with the right. complexity of our technology? Right. So I, part of the problem here, so, so there's, two, there's two problems. One is staying uh, sufficiently sophisticated about the complexity of our systems right. to keep up. And the amount of time, it's just, it just takes time through the public sector to create law, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. just, and so the... the, the you know, the in technology has already outstripped that. In, in yes. fact, do you ha even have a, a sense of how long typically it takes to develop a law around a new and emerging issue? I've seen numbers today in the three to five year period. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly there wow. are things that have taken 10 years. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, and then you say, okay, and how effective are, are our legal systems at actually accomplishing mm -hmm. that? Right. We see increasing right. levels of gridlock. But the other thing that's important about this is as it becomes... If it, we currently use a system of lawmaking that says we want to write basically write a blueprint for how we want the world to look, mm -hmm. and so more complex structures create more complex blueprints. Now it's and and that's actually I think a false idea about how you accomplish the objectives. Mm -hmm. But that's our that's our legal mindset. That's how we train right. our lawyers. And of course, the more complex, the slower things are to get so through. So slow. Yes. Mm -hmm. But then what's really important is expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, much, much more expensive. Now, what happens then is you get increasing levels of just the cost of compliance, mm -hmm. cost of challenge, and levels of ambiguity, conflict. Mm -hmm. So think about, you know, one of the analyses of what happened in the uh, financial crisis mm -hmm. was you just had so many regulatory agencies with so many overlapping yes. rules. You had regulatory arbitrage. You had all this. And so what happens is as you get increasing levels of complexity and cost, you actually start to tip, tip backwards. So if you want to think as you increase the complexity of your law, you know, right, at, right. at some point you're, you're getting more rule of law and then eventually, eventually it goes backwards because nobody can comply. So, so you know, it, it strikes me here, if you compare the law to technology innovation, complexity is a good thing in innovation because it actually gives you the opportunity to do new, unique things faster. Whereas what you're saying on the flip side, on the legal side, it actually means you're going to go slower and get mired faster. So if you've already got a gap between 
the regulations and technology innovation, that's going to increase really rapidly. Mm -hmm. Yes, if you're stuck on the regulatory technology right. Right. that we built on in the last century, which was rules on paper, mm -hmm. arrived at through public sector processes, mm -hmm. um, and adjudicated with legal expertise, if we follow those methods, right. mm -hmm. then yes, you're, you, you get greater complexity on paper but you're actually getting less of the outcome that you want, which is predictability, channeling of behavior into mm -hmm. the results that you want, the outcomes right. that you want, the behaviors you want. So I guess then we need to innovate in how we even think of governance. I think yeah. so, exactly. Right. I, okay, I so. think that's exactly right. Not, think, not that I've read your book. Not that, not that, you that I'm setting book. you up. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what do you think? I mean, do, do you, is this the kind of thing where when we, as one thinks about how to do governance, not the outputs of the governance process, but how the governance process exists that you, I mean, do you strip it all away and start from scratch or no. what do you think? No, I don't think you strip it all away. And I'm clearly, we're clearly not talking about, we just completely, it, this is not an agenda to get rid of governments. It's not mm -hmm. an agenda to get rid of that process, but it is to say, look, we need regulatory technology mm -hmm. that can keep up with the, the speed, complexity, mm -hmm. uh, and, and rates of innovation mm -hmm. of our underlying economy, technology, and so on. And, and by technology, mm -hmm. regulatory technology, I don't necessarily mean hard technology. I just yeah. say, look, writing rules down on paper, having them passed by regulatory bodies and, 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 and legislatures and adjudicated by courts, with that's our current regulatory technology. Yes. Mm -hmm. But we're going to need things that, like, you know, for autonomous vehicles, right? Uh, for example, yeah, I'm pretty sure the regulatory technology we're going to need for that is going to involve some AI. It's going to mm -hmm. involve systems that allow high levels of, of continual data exchange and intervention, which I don't think we can structure very effectively um, through governments alone. Okay. Um, and and this is the most critical thing because what I I really think we need to be thinking about is how do we create a uh, a regulatory layer in the market that can attract the money and brains we need to inventing those regulatory technologies. Oh, interesting. Right. Okay. Right. So where are the incentives? Exactly. Yeah. So so we've you know we've we we move from centrally planned economies mm -hmm. through in large parts of the world where governments said here's how much steel to produce, here's what apartments mm -hmm. to you know we should build and where and what jobs people take. You hit the, I think, the limits on that for lots of reasons, but one of it is the complexity of the economy. Yes. So we see a move that says, okay, we're going to shift to a world where we, we push down into the market in order to get the incentives better. Right, right. Decisions mm -hmm. about what, how much steel to produce and mm -hmm. what apartments to build. And we create government that regulates those markets to make sure, like antitrust law, that they're not collusive okay. and so on. And... What I'm thinking we need to do is do a similar move with our regulatory layer, which is say we need to make sure that governments are still overseeing the results we're getting, mm -hmm. but we need to create the incentives for private industry to be investing in the innovation of regulatory technology. So what does this then begin to look like. So to somebody that's thinking, regulation, I understand that. You've got an agency like the Environmental Protection Agency or FDA 
they regulate, but you're not talking about regulations in that sense. So what does this actually look like? Right. So I, I think it's, and, and this is also already something that within the world of regulation, people recognize, mm-hmm. you know, there's a difference between command and control regulations, mm-hmm. so yes. the detailed writing of rules and the establishment of outcomes or oversight of risk management mm-hmm. systems. And so, so step number one is separate out outcomes from the detailed mechanisms we use to arrive at those outcomes, mm-hmm. to try and achieve those accident rates, toxicity levels, uh, you know, injury in hospitals, etc. Mm-hmm. And say, okay, so it's, it's perfectly appropriate uh, to have government involved in setting our outcome. Right, variables. right. We but, need but then legitimate. allow multiple paths. But then, to exactly, there. to yes. say yep. we yep. can... Uh, so, so in, in the, the form of this that I think of, which I call super regulation, is um, you have you want to think about a government body that's establishing outcomes, and it won't work everywhere, but where it can work, establish outcome variables or even principles, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you think about private entities, it could be profit or nonprofit, that apply to governments for mm-hmm. basically license to serve as a private regulator. Interesting. And they maintain that license only so long as they can demonstrate that whatever method they're using accomplishes the objectives. And then you require your target entities, you know, the companies you're trying to ultimately regulate, Mm -hmm. to choose a regulator. A private regulator. Right. Interesting. So, Heather, I'm I'm fascinated by your response to this, both as somebody who works in the medical field, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. can be very regulated, but also gets a little bit sort of grayish and mushy at that individual sort of patient um, healthcare provider level. Well, it does. But actually, what I was thinking about when you talk about... um, uh, companies, for example, identifying, selecting which regulator they wish to be regulated by leads me to think about the process of uh, credentialing medical professionals that we have today. So for example, I'm an adult nurse practitioner and I can, if I were to be taking my board exams today, there are two different organizations or there were two different organizations that both granted the same credential. So I could select which board I wanted to be credentialed and and really regulated under. And we're seeing that emerging in medicine now where um, the American Board of Internal Medicine has come under criticism by many, many physicians around the country and they are creating their new own emergent board. it seems to me like that's sort of the yes. same thing. Yes, yes. So yeah. that's yes, exactly on that kind of model. And I think the the challenge here, and this is the economist talking, is to mm-hmm. figure out how can we make those markets for regulation right. mm-hmm. more competitive. Mm-hmm. But the professional sector is the the most developed example I know of this around the world is in the regulation of lawyers in the UK. Okay. Where you have the Legal Services Act, which sets out uh, principles uh, for regulation. Mm-hmm. So protection of the rule of law, uh, accessibility, mm-hmm. etc., confidentiality. Uh, it establishes a public body called the Legal Services Board. Mm-hmm. The only function of the Legal Services Board is to approve regulators of the actual providers right. of legal services. So there's actually nine approved private regulators okay. now, three of whom completely overlap in the services that mm-hmm. their licensed people can accomplish. Yes. Now that's grown out of a long history of 
bar regular so we have the barristers organization we have the solicitors organization we have something called legal executives and it's not as competitive as we'd like yet there are a lot of barriers to once you because a lot of their regulations are around upfront educational requirements mm-hmm. you know it makes it difficult right. to switch and right. so it's right. not and so i think the the design question here mm-hmm. is and and the nurse practitioner example is is a great example here to think this through, uh, or medical licensing, how do you improve the competitiveness of that market? Yes. Um, so, so that those entities have an incentive to say, okay, so what are we being? We're being regulated to reduce um, um, medical injuries. Sure. Um, well, you know, maybe I'm going to develop a system that says, actually, I I'm, can do some big data analysis and say, you know, here I've identified four factors that don't pop up in our mm-hmm. other systems mm-hmm. of thinking about what the rules should be. Okay. Um, you know, that, that actually this, this system works better than that system. So it encourages the kind of in, innovation we have going right. on throughout yes. the rest of the economy. So, so something that intrigues me with this is, is who... The, the consumers, ultimate consumers are or the drivers. So mm-hmm. in the medical profession, obviously you've got medical professionals, mm-hmm. but patients come in there at some point. They sure should. Oh, they yeah. should, okay, <laughs> okay. And I was trying to use that as a segue to thinking of something like self-driving cars, where ultimately you've got consumers deciding, are they gonna use these services or not? And mm-hmm. even if they're not using, how safe are they gonna be on roads where you've got these cars? Right. So you've got that sector of society putting pressure on companies to do the right thing. Um, and then with your model, I guess you would have the organizations between government um, that the self-driving car companies can work through to decide which standards or rules or regulations or whatever they're gonna comply with. How does this all tie together between the consumer who wants to be safe and doesn't want to be mm-hmm. killed or maimed mm-hmm. and the manufacturers and then government that ultimately has, I guess, some degree of responsibility here? I should, I should say that I think the, the, the challenge of this mo- mode of regulation is we're currently not thinking through the details of how it would work. Okay, and right. I, so I do want to be clear picture. that yes, it has yes. to. We, it, we would have to think through how does this work in any particular setting. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's two basic models that I can think of for how you say, how is this protecting the consumer interest in yes. the, in the uh, self-driving car setting? Uh, one is to say, well, that's what our government bodies are responsible for. Mm-hmm. So they, they're, so the consumer is uh, protected through the processes we now think of as protecting them mm-hmm. by saying, well, your regulatory, your government body is responsible for making sure that the licensing scheme for private regulators is hitting the right targets and is valid and mm-hmm. has teeth and is working. Mm-hmm. So that's one method. Yes. But I think there is also likely to be settings where we could imagine that the, the choice between regulators is made not by the provider, uh, the company, mm-hmm. but by the consumer and the user. Right. And I, I'm, I right. sort of think like in the privacy, I've been thinking about Facebook and mm-hmm. privacy mm-hmm. and the GDPR lately, of course. And, you know, I framed this, uh, this model thinking of companies choosing their regulator. 
but I think there's a way in which you could imagine that users of platforms so, so could be I the can user. Im- I can imagine that extremely clearly. So you take self-driving cars again, because it's, I mm-hmm. think it's an interesting example. And one of the arguments for developing the technology is at the moment in the States, we've got around about 38,000 deaths on the roads through crashes mm-hmm. each year. Um, and the idea is with self-driving technologies, we can reduce that. Yes. Now, what if the regulators not only had, or if they were given targets for exactly how safe these cars are going to be, and different regulators had different schemes for proving that because it's incredibly difficult mm. to prove safety of cars but there are some really yes. sophisticated ways in which you can do it mm-hmm. so if you I can imagine if you're the regulator that has that unique approach of data analytics and technology to demonstrate that you're safer mm-hmm. or your standards are safer consumers could potentially buy into yes. that right right so it might be mm-hmm. that on my app mm-hmm. right you know I've already I've, I've entered in that I only accept rides from that's cars right. that yes. are regulated. Yeah. Right. That's right. right. Yes. So yes. I think that because yes. I, I think one of the things that's really important to remember is the, the again coming back to the complexity point, and this is I think the flaw in the say the GDPR and thinking about consent and consumer choice. Can, can is, we pause for one second in case there's somebody listening who doesn't know what the GDPR? Oh, is. sorry, the, the General Data Protection Regulation, Regulation in the yeah. uh, yep. European yes. Union yes. that's about Thank to you. roll out in a week or so. <laughs> yes, and and the global and the business global, community exactly. is yes. freaking out right yes. now. Yes, in a good and productive way. Yes, of and creating all kinds of rights to access your data, to mm-hmm. to, to uh, ostensibly to tell or entities to stop processing your data and so on. Uh, but the the a lot of it comes back to consent, which we all know what consent looks like. It's all those little boxes that you just keep clicking, mm-hmm. agree, agree, right, agree. Right. Uh, and, and it's really a bit of a mirage to think that the uh, that consumers are going to be able to evaluate that. So I think we have to think about how do you develop intermediaries who are going to help accomplish that. Okay. But I, I the, the the key thing is that yes, I think we can. We can think about, um, you know, yeah, consumers who are saying, "I'm only willing to do business with entities that are regulated right, under this." Right. Yes. And I could choose seven. I'm, I could say, "I'm willing to take it," and I've, uh, you know, with, I'm willing to take a car that's regulated by mm-hmm. two different alternative systems. Um, but I think that's what we're looking for. Right, right. And I can see that working when eventually consumer choice begins to push the decisions that are made all the way up the chain. And one of the key and, and one of the key things to recognize here is that we already have a lot of that, but we're mm-hmm. still in a two party you know, we have I mean, Uber is regulating itself. Right. In order to improve its attractiveness mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Uh, to customers. And this is really saying, look, can we create a regulatory layer there, so a market yep. layer, so that we actually have entities that are invested, third-party entities that are mm-hmm. invested in improving. So, so I've also got to assume, again, with this particular example, because um, government um, entities, all the way from the local level to the state, uh, state and federal level, really can't work out how on earth they're going to regulate this technology. So if you had another layer in there Mm -hmm. with smart people and smart organizations that can come up with alternative regulatory regimes that Mm -hmm. they're then part of, you've then got innovation built into the system as well. Exactly. So I think that you you, you basically say, look, governments need to sort of move into the outcomes and metrics uh, Mm -hmm. oversight role. Uh, We need to start... You know, harnessing incentives to invest in the technology. I mean, I don't see how you're going to regulate AI without AI. 
Right, right. Well, right. Well, Which sounds a little scary, I but, must confess. But, but, but. but then you're going to need people, you know, right now we have all these market incentives for companies to develop AI, mm-hmm. to deliver goods and services to people. Yep. You need to get some of the incentive there to invest in, i got to be able to make some money coming up with a data exchange system or a data analytics system that, uh, you know, picks up sooner uh, those cars are producing higher rates of accidents in the following circumstances. Sure. Right. Um, well, and the other thing with AI, and I think that's a great example, AI writ large, um, inviting the need for sort of a multi-stakeholder and, and, and actually consumer-focused regulatory layer that may be one solution to help us uncover and prevent the development of um, uh bias, algorithmic bias Mm -hmm. in AI, because there's a tremendous amount, I have a tremendous amount of concern about the directions that our society may go, may be driven by AI that is fundamentally biased based on the human biases that go into the initial algorithm development and training. Right, right. And, and, uh, you know, I think what, what, what we have, we already see tremendous pressure uh, to push this into the private sector. In fact, mm-hmm. all a lot of our discussions around soft law, or private regulation, industry mm-hmm. standards, and mm-hmm. so on, uh, we already see that a lot of this happens in the private sector mm-hmm. uh, and in the corporate sector. And that so you you know companies that are themselves worried about you yeah. know are we building bias into our right. algorithms, mm-hmm. trying to train their engineering staff, and so on. Um, but again, I think what we are looking at is. We're, we're only seeing two options. Mm-hmm. Either companies self-regulate or government has to do it. But right. government this capacity, you this mm-hmm. is a third way of yep. doing this. It tries to say, look, mm-hmm. I don't want to just rely on the fact that I know that you know these large corporations, uh, they have to be involved yes. at the private level in the creation of our rules. Yes. But I don't really think that our governments have the capacity to oversee the details. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'd like to say, yeah, I'd like to get the private sector in there, but I'd like them to have a different... You want them to have two masters. They only maintain their license if they achieve outcomes that governments continue to approve of. Uh And they only make money if they produce systems that work well for consumers and and businesses. There you go. So I think that's the perfect, that's a pretty good place to end, where you say what we need is not an either-or system, but really the improv comedy approach to the world that I choose to take, which is yes and. (laughs) That's great. That's great. All right. Well, thank you, Jillian, so much for being with us. Thank Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.as. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.